When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. I weren't doing it for the money. I was doing it for the adrenaline. You said you love competition. Who was your competition at that point? And everyone said, you're a genius. Though I always like spending time with Barry. What's been the, the hard bits? You can't live with me. Let's get on with it. I'm George. He's Deck. Hello. It's the George Groves Boxing Club. Hello, Deck. Hello, George Groves. How are you? I'm really good, pal. How Hi. are you? I'm, I'm never better. I'll tell you why I'm doing well. You look at the merch pages, the merch sales. Oh, the print's gone down like hotcakes. Don't try and eat the print, though. No, and be careful eating hotcakes around the print. Yeah. Because if you're anything like me... You get crumbs everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's a couple of prints there if you want one. And honestly, we can't have people in three weeks going, where are the prints going to get one? Because once they're gone, they're gone. And have you noticed, Deck? that there's been an outcry mm. for your signature. Yeah. You need to create a signature. Yeah. Because I've already let slip that you haven't got one. It's no. what's on the back of your bank card. Maybe I'm open to people sending in suggestions for my, uh, send a picture on Instagram of a suggestion of what you could write, like my signature. And if it's a good one, I'll master it. Well, what's your fight name? Because I sign everything St. G. Grove. Swindon Slug. Slug, yeah. Yeah, little slug. But yeah, we had a few few requests from George England. St. Yeah. George's Day legend himself. He did. Was he one. wanted your name on there. Yeah, shout out George England. Anyway, in Anyway, we should get into this, George, because it's a big boy, two-part job. It's a twopper. Yeah. yeah. We're completing the family set. It's like happy families. The point is that Barry is joining his son, Eddie, in our exclusive club. Let's go. Let's get Barry in. Part one is here. Let's go. Today, we have another heavyweight promoter in the club. He's the founder and president of Matrim Sport. He's been a figurehead promoter and chairman across many sports such as darts, boxing, snooker, football, and even fishing. Uh, is Barry Hearn. Of course, Barry, welcome to the Thanks, to George. the club, mate. You're in the club. I'm honoured. I'm privileged to be invited, George, at my time of life. You know, usually get forgotten. And I knew Groves, he hadn't had that many fights that he <laughs> forgot me, but he's, he's, he's come back and made my day. So it's good to see you. One of the first times I came, we were in the Matrim HQ and I was here to meet Barry when Eddie was really sort of steering the boxing ship but they were trying to do good cop bad cop and they thought Eddie was with Frotch and, and I'd have Barry so and he oh, came so he you, gave you me the tour there. That was yeah and, a link, and he told me about helicopter landing there was a couple of US presidents that, yeah, that week yeah. did you have yeah, or something I, something similar I think I just called them US presidents because I was getting money off them George <laughs> but it was quite early days you know people look at boxing George now and they think it's always been like it but it hasn't you know boxing has changed 
astronomically in the last 20 or 30 years. The promoters were always the governors. You know, you boxers, you did more or less as you were told. And looking back on some of the things that happened in the, the 40s, 50s and 60s, and even the 70s, it was like, oh, that doesn't really seem fair. And then this new breed of boxers came in. You were one of them, but you weren't the first. I think it really started with Lennox Lewis and maybe Eubank was followed up with Nazim Hamed, Ricky Hatton. You, Frotch, obviously, and then subsequently people like AJ and a lot of... But the world's changed. The needle has gone, you know. So when George first came to see me, I was, still I was on the tail end of being a boss, if you like. And that, that means that the fighter doesn't really trust you because he knows the system. And the boss should understand that those days are gone because talent is king. And, and those years, early years, have developed where the pendulum has completely swung where the power of boxing is. And I, I find it fascinating because I'm good, but it don't matter if I haven't got good fighters. You can be the worst promoter in the world, and there's plenty of them around, but if you've got the talent, you're number one. Whereas before, you know, 30 years ago in the Mickey Duff days or what, the early days of Warren and me, you had to know your stuff. And then fighters like you come along and you actually wanted to say. You were, you were quite... <laughs> yeah, you know, he's prickly. That's he, no, but he was. He was prickly because he, he didn't trust anyone. And quite rightly, he was, he was right. It can be a bit annoying sitting on my side of the fence. You think, who is this little kid, you know? And you have to listen. And, and over the years, we sort of developed a different relationship. I think it started off, you know, quite tumultuous. In the first, you know, you knew he was on Frotty's side really but you didn't care because you backed yourself didn't you, you backed your own ability and then later on you i think you used the system very well you were you were quite a smart kid george to be honest with you well, then. and smart is dangerous <laughs> <laughs> that's great you know, i always like spending time with barry we met a few times in london sometimes it was just in the breeze and at that point i would be trying to uh, i was just listening for the stories a lot of the time yeah, but i think he was also working out your own world george I, I mean i like to give you that credit because i think you are you know i'm not going to say you're genius but I think you're half smart you think you know <laughs> there were times when I thought you thought you thought you knew more than you actually knew and and sometimes you need that old fellow with grey hair to put his arm around you and say now listen son I've seen this before steer away from this yeah, or steer no. away from that because experience especially when they get to a certain age when they're not really trying to make like now I mean Eddie's the man totally he's a great operator but I like fighters and I like fighting, but I like to create memories for everybody and including myself selfishly. I mean, the first big fight I did was Bruno uh, against Bugner, you know, which I, and I didn't know what I was doing, George, but somehow it worked because the public spoke and it was a big fight and it made a shed load of money. The next two or three years, I paid, I mean, I don't know what I made on the Bruno Bugner, about a million and a quarter in 87. And I lost three or four times that in the next four or five years because I didn't know what I was doing and I had to pay my dues same as anyone does and, and, and I don't regret that. There was a passion there for boxers with me that went way beyond the money, you know. When Mark Reefer won my first title, my first title, you know, he's the boxer, it's my first title. They all call Bethnal Green. I, don't, I can't recall being happier other than Steve Davis winning the World Snooker Championships or Chris Eubank winning, beating Nigel Benn. You know, sport's a funny thing. Well, we're, we're blessed in, in this office, Matchroom is, yeah, we do make a good living. There's no point in denying it. We make a lot of money. But we haven't always made a lot of money and we've been going since 1982. So we're over 40 years. But along the way, we've had moments that you can't buy. And, you know, whether it's Frotty's right hand chinning you in the second fight or whether it's watching you subsequently go on to achieve your dreams, even though you weren't involved with us, that is really rewarding to be around that world. Because when you get to, I'm 75 now, George, you know, I don't know, I'm in good shape. 
I don't know how long I've got, but it's not going to be desert. It's not going to be determined by how many pounds I've got. I remember AJ when we first signed AJ, and he sat opposite me. You know, you can understand he's a kid. You know, everyone's after him, and he looked at me and he went, "What do you want out of me, really?" I want 1% of your adrenaline. And he didn't really understand it at the time. But when you've been through, you've experienced things in my, that I will never experience in my life. You've got that adrenaline surge, controlled, physically ready. I will never. And I'm jealous of you. Now, you will never have in your life as much money as I've got. But you, the, the jealousy is not the same way. You've experienced something that you can't buy. And that's quite unique. And so for that reason, I'm a fighter's fan, but it doesn't mean to say I like people take the piss out of me. And in his early days, he would definitely have tried to take the piss out of me because, you know, he was sometimes a bit too smart for his own good. You're either on the team or you're not. And there weren't many on your team, though. Yeah, there I mean, wasn't because I remember being at that point, I would have loved to have been able to genuinely link up with Barry, you know, mm. uh, but there was a big stick in the way and that was Frotch. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, even if they all hated Frotch, even yeah. if you could if, if walk around the offices here and everyone all your staff and that people you'd never see before they're like oh, is an arsehole well, this is, I still I still couldn't have done it it wouldn't have worked no. I wouldn't have and at that point in my life I was still learning and but do you know it never works towards when you've got I mean sometimes inevitably it happens but say you've got two fighters in your stable fighting each other and everyone goes no it's okay it's not okay I'm it's glad you okay. said that yeah. it's not okay because you must favour one against the other I mean I remember I, uh, Steve Collins bless him when he fought Eubank at the end of the fight and I'd done a great job on Steve Collins I mean he'd come into my office with no shoelaces in his shoes and I made him a world champion I, and I know what I did picked the right fights paid him well and I gave him the Eubank fight I expected Eubank to win two fights from the same camp and, and Collins won. Collins looked at me and said, I can't pay your commission. I said, why not? You know, so I just can't pay it. I physically can't write the check out. He got away with it because I had two fighters and the courts decided it was a conflict of interest. But that just explains the fact that you can't be in both corners. You can, and we'll have it every now and again. Every time one of our fighters goes in with another one of our fighters, everyone says the same thing. It's a professional sport. That's okay. They're both getting paid. It's never the same. Do you have that same attitude for the snooker players or is it different because it's not no, much? Him? No, with me, it was Davis and me against the world. And even though my stable of snooker players included the top eight, Terry Griffiths, Tony Mio, Dennis Taylor, all those household names, they all knew that Davis came first. They knew I was rooting for Davis. So the secret is you don't make a secret of it. You just say, tell them the truth. It's a bit like you when I would have been honest with you and said, listen, Frotchie was the first one here. He's done well for us. We've had some great nights. We have to favour him. I'll do my best job for you. But when you fight him, I've got to be on his corner. Sometimes telling the truth is easy to say and difficult to do. Let's wind it back. We're in your, your offices now in, in Essex. You used to live here. This used to be like the family home. Yeah. Helicopter pad out on the on the grass. You can see the, the city in the distance. But for you, it started much closer to the city in Dagenham. We always like these Hollywood stories. You know, rags to riches, this kid's dance. I'm from the gutter. Not the case at all. I had a wonderful, happy childhood. We was poor. My dad was a bus driver. And my mum was a child. She'd keep cleaning to his houses. If you grow up in a family that loves you, you're never poor. And I can't remember feeling sorry for myself. As, as you got towards double-digit numbers, like 10 years old, and you start seeing things, and you think, I just thought, why have not, you know, at the top of the hill was the, the rich people's houses. Why haven't we got a car? Why haven't we got a television? Well, you know, and it's that sort of thing. But it wasn't with sadness. It, it wasn't even with envy. It was just like, I want the same as you. Give me a shot at it. And, you know, I started working, doing various things. I started at 12, 
tomato plants. I was stripping tomato plants for the Italians and then car washing, window cleaning, babysitting. Later on, I mean, and the world was a lot softer place in those days. I did a bit of security because I, I was fairly reasonable size and I could, my fighting wasn't as good as uh, my mouth, but one way or another, I got past it. I always had money, you know, I always had a few quid because I knew it was just a question of how many hours would I put in. If there's a job to be done, whatever it was, I used to go and do it because... I wanted to have a few readies in the back pocket and, you know, my dad died very young, so my mother was my driving force. She locked me in my bedroom most nights from age 18 to 21, every night of the week, to make sure that I'd learned. She wanted me to be a chartered accountant and you didn't disagree with my mum. My mother was an amazing woman. She was like a working class snob, really. She had no money, but she wanted the best for her kids. The best was her perception of the best. It wasn't necessarily the best. So when I, I mean, I passed my 11 plus, I think I was the only kid on my estate that did. So all my mates turned out not to be my mates because they were jealous I was going to grammar school. And that was all sort of confrontations and things like that. And then my mum put me into elocution lessons. She said, you've got to speak like a nice people, like the nice boys. Didn't really work. But then she enrolled me the following year in the Amateur Dramatic Society. She said, you've got to do Shakespeare. You've got to do Bertolt Brecht. And I was quite a reasonable actor. And looking back on it, all the things I learned from her without even knowing I was learning it gave me the confidence to project, you know. And, and then she put me in, I was in the verse reading society. I used to go around all the schools in Essex. I, I specialised in T.S. Eliot and Robert Graves. Of course, you, you learn to look after yourself, George, because kids are really cruel. So all my so-called mates, they used to sort of resent it, rather and bash me up. So you learn to, to look after yourself. You know, I was okay. I was never special. It gave a sort of them and us attitude, which I like. I like to see that. In a way, I, I quite like to associate myself with boxers because I, they come from generally a similar background to where I come from and they had a bloody struggle because it is a bloody struggle. It's hard. I always think if a boxer can take that sacrifice he made in his life and convert that to a business attitude, you can't help but be a huge success because, you know, the people that just go straight into business, they haven't got our your kill or be killed attitude. I've taken that into business my whole life because I play it like a game. I play like a sport. I don't really play it to make money. I just play it to beat people. And I want to slaughter them. I want to put their brain on a jam jar on my sitting room. I want to know they can't live with me. It's a similar sort of attitude. Not, it's not the same. I mean, obviously, because yours is violent and physical. But it's that attitude about, you know, that confidence when you know you can't live with me. I'm going to embarrass you. I have exactly the same thing when I go into business in the sports world. Not outside. There's a very smart people out there. But I go into the boxing business. I look around at people in the business and I just smile. So never a doubt, Mary. My whole life I've had setbacks. I have the ability, George, to compartmentalise things in my life. Sounds complicated, but it's not. It's basically, as my wife says, that's because you're superficial. And I think she's right. Not bad being superficial. I'm true to myself. I care about other people, but I only care about people that are close to me. I don't really care that much about people who are not. But when you're close to me, you're in my family and I will protect you the best I can. When I have setbacks, I compartmentalise that in my brain in as far as I've learned the error of my ways, but I don't need to think about it anymore. So anything that's happened, I don't linger on because I can't affect it. It's done. Move on. And I do that every time. Obviously, after a while, you get quite smart and you don't make the same mistake over and over again. But I'm the happiest person that you will ever meet in your life because I am what I am the only person that's going to affect me is God when he says Bell come and sort out heaven for me will you because it's chaotic 
And I'll just go and do a job for him. He knows where I am. <laughs> he knows I'm the best. Yeah. Speaking of which, what was the initial move then into sport? Well, I, I mean, suddenly I got this mum saying, you're going to be a chartered accountant. I didn't know what they did even, but she said the man whose house she cleaned said to her, your son should be a chartered accountant because you never see a poor one. That line stuck in my brain all my life. So, okay, you never see a poor one. I don't know what it is, but I'll do it. So then, then four years later, I'm qualified, one of the youngest associate members of the Institute, subsequently one of the youngest, you know, I think the youngest fellow of the Institute. Now I've got some security. I haven't bought a house as such, but I've got a qualification, which means I can always get a job. Getting a job in working class language means you're never going to go hungry. You're always going to put food on the table for your family. The next job is let's pay for the house so that no one, because we always live in fear of people taking things away from us, or we did in those days, you know, because it was very class system. I remember my first job, a major firm of international accountants, and I'm, as you can expect, super smart. So after two years, they bring me into the office and they say, we want to make you a manager. And you are, in our 200-year history, the youngest manager we've ever employed. You've done a great job, blah, 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 blah. And he said, but this is as far as you go. So in those days, it wasn't colour, race or creed. It was working class system. So you're going to be a manager and you're going to get well paid and you're going to have a great pension scheme, but you're never going to be a partner because you didn't go to university. Your family's not got money. You've got no connections. And, all that. and in those days, that was, and I thought, fuck you. So six months later, I left, went to a fashion company that was brilliant for me. And they said, you know, we're doing okay. We want to diversify the group. I was only 25. They said, you're in charge. Along the way, I bought a chain of snooker halls. Not because I like snookers. I never played. But it was a good asset. You know, they had high street properties, freeholds. I thought, you can't lose money on this. And then, of course, Lady Luck, as, as throughout my life, Lady Luck has shone at me at the right time. You know, with my mum. That was lucky. You know, chartered accountancy, it was lucky. Got this job and I was just an employee, but I was earning good money. And of course, I was bonus related, as you'd expect. Suddenly, the BBC put snooker on mainstream television. And all of a sudden, these snooker halls, instead of being half empty, they were queuing up down the street to play. And everyone said, you're a genius. How did you know this was going to happen? I went, I just saw it coming. Nonsense. I got lucky. In life, don't matter how smart you are, you've got to get lucky. Smart people still go poor. Smart people still go without. You've got to be lucky. And that was massive. Snooker became massive. And then Lady Luck looked down and decided to do something else for me. I'm sitting in my office in the snooker hall and get a phone call from the manager upstairs at Romford. He said, uh, you should come up here and see. He said, there's a kid up here playing snooker. He said, the laugh looks special. The laugh looked good. I went up there and there's this tall-skinned ginger, ginger-haired kid. And it ended up being Steve Davis, who's been my best friend for 50 years. And we changed the world of snooker between us. And without him, I probably wouldn't, you wouldn't even want to talk to me because that was the first stepping stone. In the meantime, the, the textile business that I was being employed by got into trouble and they needed sorting out and they weren't clever enough or willing to sort it out properly. And I was. So I did a job for them and I took a third of the company in exchange for doing a not a, not a pleasant job, getting rid of a load of people, which I was okay with. Then I sold the snooker business in 82 for, I think, three and a half, four million, something like that. It was a lot of money. And then I thought, blimey, I'm 34. I think I'll retire. And uh, that was my first thought because you think, you know, you start getting, someone gives you a check for seven figures and you're, you're 34. You think, oh, I've got to pack up work now. But no, no, I decided I'll spend all the money. And uh, one of the things I bought was this place, 245 grand, George. But I wanted to have that fun, that buzz, that adrenaline that, be, that business deals give me. 
and sport gives me and you know I always participate in every sport I mean boxing included I just wasn't good but as far as being enthusiastic I was on a different scale So when did your performing arts background kick in? Because was that subdued comp- when you went to work in the chartered accountants? Yeah, a little bit. But where I was good, George, was putting up the fees. So they was all very posh and friendly, and but they were embarrassed to talk about money because their breeding said you don't just, you know, money or fees. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll look at leave it to us, old boy. Me, I looked at it and go, listen, mate, this fee ain't gone up for two years. And we're doing, I'm doing a blinding job for you. And you know, I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to double that or treble it. And I used to, that's why they, they were so impressed with me because their fee income went through the roof because I was a salesman, really. And I've always been a salesman, you know, but I sell to myself and sell to other people. That experience of what my mother actually forced me into getting was the ability not to be frightened of opening your mouth. When you first came here, you didn't really want to say too much because you felt a little bit out of your depths. You knew you was good at boxing. You wasn't sure you was getting the right value. You hadn't had enough experience in life. This is all completely understandable. What you changed in your career over five or six years, you became a completely different animal. And you also became much more self-assured with yourself. Looking at you, there was always that, that, that something missing slightly of, you really needed to be loved, George, but you didn't get anyone around you early doors to really love you, you know? As your career progressed and you have relationships and children and all that, suddenly you found the confidence to be your own man much more, which I admired in you, you know? Didn't make you a better fighter or anything like that. But as a person, that's where I felt I got early from my mother, the confidence to stand up and actually argue your case and stand toe-to-toe and look people in the eyes and say, no, that is not what I want. And that confidence I think she gave me, and I've never really lost it. You know, I've softened a little bit as I got older because I've seen other, other people's point of view. But, you know, suddenly we had this ginger kid. He won the world title in 81. And then the phone call started from all over the world. I went off. I did the first show in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing before Tiananmen Square, before the revolution. I had the whole Chinese government sitting around watching a game of billiards. Because we were passionate about it, we believed in the sport, we loved the game. I can't sell something I don't have passion for. People say to me, get involved in motorsport. I don't like tennis. I don't like tennis. And if you don't like it, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It just doesn't sound sincere. Whereas darts, pool, fishing, whatever... I'm passionate about that and, you know, I bore people to shit for death for eight hours talking about it, you know. But snooker was the first baby. Like all Geminians, I suppose, we float around a bit like a butterfly and I've had 10 years doing snooker and I think, yeah, I like the snooker, but I, I need that buzz. And, of course, I've always been a big boxing fan. I mean, I don't know. It's embarrassing talking in front of a great fighter, but when I was eight, I used to sit with my transistor radio underneath my covers in the middle of the night and listen to Rocky Marciano fighting someone or then later on Ali and, you know, and then you'd go to Saturday morning pictures and you'd watch Pathé News and there'd always be a clip of a fight. God, you know, the adventure, fancy being, fancy being able to describe yourself as champion of the world. And I, I grew up wanting to be heavyweight champion of the world. It's, it's always good to have a dream, but... 
perhaps I should have grown up wanting to be the best chartered accountant in the world. It was a bit more appropriate. I mean, I had a little mess around for a few years. I didn't start till I was about 27. Yeah, I had a bloke called Freddie King who used to train me, who used to get into more fights than I did in the ring. He got into more fights outside the ring. So we got on ever so well. He became a great mate. I was supposed to be on some dinner show on, on the Saturday and I think my last round of sparring, there was, it was like light heavyweight. There was no one in the gym apart from this big heavyweight. Wasn't a good idea. I uh, broke my shoulder and uh, gave me a good excuse to retire before my pristine good looks got sp spoiled. But I was still sparring in the gym up until 46 years old, 47 years old. So, you know, I just, I, I, I like it. I'm, not, I'm just not very good. But, you know, it's all levels, isn't it? You know, there were times I would, even me, who was terrible, would go in the gym and say, oh, I know I'm better than him. That didn't happen very often. But when it did, I felt like champion, you know. Yeah, so like I was never going to be a, you know, never going to be a top amateur or anything like that. I just, I like it. But I like conflict. I like competition. And I take that into business. And I run everything. So like at Matrim now, everybody knows I'm hands-on, although I'm supposed to be semi-retired. But everyone got targets to beat. Whatever you're doing, you must give yourself a target to beat. So you make it into a competition. And you, sometimes you lose, don't you, in a competition. And you don't disintegrate, you go again. So the boxing passion was underlying during, always, during always, the yeah. snooker years. I mean, I used to go to all the shows when I was younger, amateur and professional, you know, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night at Royal Albert Hall for the ABAs was like the highlight of my year. Because I knew most of the kids, I'd grown, not most, I knew a lot of them, I'd grown up around them, various faces, I, you know, obviously that was where I lived. So it was nothing, it was a day out. But I always thought as a punter that I never got value for money. And I was at that one show that was quite famous. It was the night of the Mexican road sweepers, which Mickey Duff was promoting. And there was five first round knockouts because these five Mexicans, I don't think had ever had a fight between them. And I'm sitting there at half past eight, having to wait till half past 10 or 10 o'clock for the main event, which also ended in one round. And I thought to myself, you know what? You can't be able to do better than this. The germ of an idea thought, why not? Terry Lawless, who was a neighbour, it looked after Bruno and he said, you should be, you know, you come, come and work for us, the cartel. He said, you know, we need a good promoter. We've got this little annoying kid driving us mad, which was Frank Warren, who, who was the one who broke up the cartel on his own. But they, they needed to come into the 20th century. They were still locked into the old days of servitude. I wouldn't work for anybody anyway. So that was an academic. And I, I had this idea. Yeah, you know, I still looked at fights as I still do now. What would I look at all sports like this? What would I want? selfishly never mind the public i think i am the public i think i am mr average working class bloke that's my attitude so when i go into any sport i say what would i want to get i don't want to get ripped off i don't want someone to charge me a tenner for a pint of lager when i know it shouldn't be more than four quid i want to be entertained i want to be treated with respect nothing but nothing too serious when i looked at boxing i thought what is the one fight i'd love to see and like everybody remembers we all booed frank joe bugner when he beat Henry Cooper. We all cheered Frank Bruno because he was like such a nice kid, you know, very respectful, very Those two together, that's, that's a fight I'd pay to see. And then I thought, well, how do you do it? I had no idea. The crucial point was I was having lunch with my wife in Southend at a Chinese restaurant. And my wife is a very difficult woman, terribly high standards that I don't ever keep up with. But I've been married to her for 53 years, so I've got, you know, and she's the one person I can rely on for total honesty. And I was saying, I'm going to do 
rubbish. She said, you know, I remember saying, rubbish, you rubbish, you'll never do it. You'll never get off your, your fat ass. You'll never, you'll never do it. I went, well, I tell you, I will. I said, I've got Joe Bogner's phone number. She went, so what? I said, stay there. I went out to the front desk. Can I use your phone? She thought I was phoning a ta- for a taxi. I phoned Melbourne, Australia. This little squeaky voice came on. Hello? Joe Bogner had a very high pitched. I said, Joe, it's Barry Hearn. I said, you don't even know me, mate. I said, I do a lot of snooker. I've heard the name. What can I do for you? I said, look, I've got an idea in my head. I want you to come over here and fight Frank Bruno. I didn't have a venue, didn't have a TV contract, nothing. But I had a few quid. And he said, oh, that's going to cost you a lot of money, Barry. I said, Joe, I think you got ten dollars or $20,000 for your last fight. I went, so I will give you £250,000 to fight Frank Bruno. And the line went quiet. And Joe Bugner went, and what plane did you want me on? (laughs) (laughs) So he was done. Bless his heart. This is where Lady Luck shines. How do you get Bruno away from the cartel without, you know, Bruno was fighting Trevor Burbick. But this was in a 10-rounder and he brought his wife and kids. And I thought, is he here on holiday? A week before the fight, he pulled out with a bad back, but he'd had his airfares and all that. You know, he'd had holiday. So I phoned up Lawless and I went, just get get Frank round your house. It's 11 o'clock at night. And Frank came round. He was, you know, destroyed because he was trained for a fight and it wasn't happening on the Saturday. I said, give me five or six. I said, I can do this. I said, you want to, I want to fight, Frank. I want to fight, said Frank. I said, we'll sign here. Bruno signed the contract. I said, I'll give you 300 grand. He was never earning money like that. And I didn't know anyway, George. I didn't know how much a purse was at all. But I think to myself, if you want to have a go, you've got to have a go at the top. And uh, he signed. And the next day I went to see Tottenham Hotspur, talked them into letting me have the ground on an unbelievable deal, give them 10% of the total gross, and they paid for everything. Took a million pound on the first day. I went on ticket sales, queues all the way around Tottenham. Didn't have a TV contract. I thought the BBC's a shoe in. They turned me down. They said, it's not a fight for us. They didn't want to deal with me. They wanted to deal with the old school. Went to ITV, Greg Dyke. I'm in the downstairs uh, at his offices, London Weekend Television. Was Frank Warren promoting on ITV at this point? He just started. Right. And I said, I, I phoned up Dyke. I said, listen, I, th- I know you're interested in boxing. You've done a couple of shows. I've only done a couple of shows. I said, I've got a fight for you. You're going to love. He went, well, next time you're in London, give me a shout, we'll get together. I said, I'm in your reception downstairs. <laughs> he went, oh, you better come up. And he asked, he said, I love that fight. He said, can you really deliver it? Because I've never done a fight. I went, of course I can, you know, I've got it all done. I said, he said, how much do you want? I said, give me 200 grand. He went, I don't believe you can deliver it. He said, if you can deliver it, I'll give you 250. To this day, it's the only time a TV company's paid me more than I asked for. <laughs> and he got 18.7 million viewers. And the BBC said it wasn't a fight for the British public. It got me addicted because it is an addiction. It's not sexual. It's not really, but you get aroused. You know, you're on, you're on the edge of your chair. You're watching your heroes. I mean, it was a shit fight, to be honest, Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went down to the dressing room, George, because I didn't know what to do. I thought, what do you do? What does a promoter do on the night of a fight? I don't know. But I remember an old black and white movie with Mickey Rooney I'd seen. Mickey Rooney went in the dressing rooms to wish everyone the best luck. I thought, I'll do that. It's good enough for Mickey Rooney. It's good enough for me. Bruno's dressing room was like a morgue. No one was talking. I just went, best of luck, Frank, and left. And Bugner's dressing room, he was like having a party <laughs> before the fight because he, he, you know, he'd fought Ali in Kuala Lumpur. He'd fought Frazier. This wasn't going to scare him, you know. And I said, Joe, listen, I want to say thanks, mate. You've sold all the tickets. You've done a brilliant job. If you win tonight, I said, there's a kid in the States coming through called Mike Tyson. I said, oh, we'll pay you a king's ransom to fight Mike Tyson in London. And he said, well, I don't know about that, Barry. He said, and you are paying me a lot of money, so I'd like to thank you as well. 
but if he hurts me, I'm going down. I thought, oh, shit, he's not even going to try. But he went eight rounds. Everyone had their money's worth. And uh, as it's still a record now of boxing on ITV. George will tell you the first time he put on the gloves, he felt comfortable. Don't ask me why. There's something in some people. Business is a bit like that for me. I'm rolling the dice. Eddie says, how did you do that show? He didn't know. He knows how complicated. I said, I have no idea. But, you know, you grafted at it. It was chaos. I had tickets all over my office in Romford, all on the floor. People were walking in, stepping over the 20 pounds to get to the 30s or whatever. I tried to reconcile the tickets afterwards. I was about a quarter of a million out. I had no idea where they'd gone. <laughs> Probably people were nicking them, you know, or whatever. But it didn't matter. We made, I say, one and a half, something like that. I cut Lawless in. I cut Mickey Duff in just to keep him quiet. Because like, they didn't understand it. I weren't doing it for the money. I was doing it for the adrenaline. And the adrenaline lives with you, you know, and... Boxing produces nights. You never forget. Close your eyes and think. I can close my eyes now and I can think of a hundred fights that were important at that time in my life, either for my relationship with a fighter, perhaps my financial relationship, perhaps the fact that it was just lovely to see someone change their life in front of you. You know, you can't. People don't understand it. You can't buy that. You know, you, know, you do get bad days. You get days where you get beat. You get days when people, are, as Mickey Duff used to say, if you want loyalty in boxing, buy a dog. You get those days. You've got to have that ability to shrug it off or you, it's a cancer. Boxing would kill you. Sports would kill you. You said you love competition. Who was your competition at that point? Frank Warren. Predominantly, uh, a little bit of Frank Maloney. Um, there's always a few other little small players. I mean, again, you see, you don't have competition if you've got all the TV money. Do you? That's where Mickey Duff and Jarvis are still, and they had the BBC exclusive. No one else was allowed to do a show within a week or so of their shows. That, that's not skill. Warren upset the apple cart with that and, and did us all a favour, in my view. I think he's a terrific knowledge of boxing, terrific boxing promoter. He's just not very good with the business of boxing because there's, there's different levels, you know. You can't be, I'm not saying this applies to him, but you've got to take a view. There's people in boxing, which I always call fur coat, no knickers. All the look all the cut but when you take away the fur coat there's no substance you know so when there's a problem covid or whatever you don't get paid you build a business you build it on several different platforms including sustainability including integrity including honesty and these are pretty basic doesn't stop you being a sharp operator don't worry about that and of course as you get bigger you can be nicer and nicer when you're really starting <laughs> you, you've got to be a bit of an arsehole sometimes just to get your foot on the ladder how did you find dealing with fighters then? Because you want to go on that emotional journey with them and you say about how wonderful it feels when they do well, when they change their life. But also the there's that way. competitive element to you where you want Matram to do well. And obviously, yeah, yeah. when fighters want a I bit think, more than they do. Honestly, this room has had so many memories, George. You know, kids come in with their mum and dad saying, I want to be managed and promoted by Barry Hearn, you know, when I was younger. And I'm like, that's fine. Do you realise the life you've got to lead? Do you realise that you're going to get damaged during your life? It's not healthy to take punches to the brain. You will pay a price for this at some stage in your life, in some way, small or major. You have to understand the risks you're getting involved in. But these people are coming with nothing to lose. So I remember one particular kid, he went, he said, what do you charge? I said, I charge 25% to look after you, but I do everything. He said, I don't mind paying 50%. I said, let me tell you something, son. If I I'll ever do the negotiating for you. <laughs> I said, number one is, if you ever earn a million quid out of a fight, let me tell you now, you won't want to pay me one penny. Some of you will disappoint me. I mean, the vast, I don't know how many fighters I've had, George, but 
thousand over over 40 years or whatever i can remember most of them but i I clearly want to remember the ones that have been successful either during their fighting career or some of them after their fighting career you know i love stories like francis ampufu with his his chicken farm who's the biggest egg supplier to marks and spencers he came off a boat from ghana Boxing gave him that. I look at people like my mate Jess Harding, who I go fishing with, and you know, now he's involved and he's, he's kept his marbles, if you like, you know, and he's a grafter. I look at Frotch, he's done well, you know. I mean, he can be a miserable bastard when he wants to be, but look and take that out of it, he's done well. Anthony Joshua will be the next level of up, and he'll be like, you know, he's got a brain and he's learning all the time. And that sort of thing satisfies me, but nothing takes away the adrenaline rush of the victory in the ring. The victory in life is a much harder fight what's been the the hard bits well, worse for me michael watson failure. getting injured that's the worst day of my life everyone takes responsibility and i do as well i mean i'm proud that michael's a, a friend now and i'm trustee you know and i shall look after him but you can't take away what happened that night and then people sometimes you know they forget some of the other fighters mark galt no, no one mentions mark galt because he was a small hall fighter that got terribly injured and he's, you know, been incapacitated since that fight. People like Michael Watson, of course, the beneficiaries have been the subsequent generation of boxers, improved their survival chances by what he went through, if that makes sense, you know. But, you know, that's boxing and it's a tough risk and we all have to bear it with us, you know. But I'm sitting here talking to you. I've got George Groves on my right-hand side, like former world champion, done ever so well. More importantly to me is the George Groves he's turned out to be than the George Groves he was, if that makes any sense. I could have made money out of him, but I could make money out of anybody. I'm the best there is. It don't make any difference. But to do it properly, you have to be selective because there is the game you've got to win and you've got to win inside and you've got to win outside for me to tick boxes. Very, very rarely have I sort of bumped into a fight you don't warm to because you know what they're going through to change their life. And in a way, really minuscule way, I can identify with that, you know? Who's been your favourite fighter that you've promoted? Well, I'd have to Who's say Eubank. to promote Eubank? Well, I'd have to say Eubank, although he turned out to be a pain as well. <laughs> but I mean... But that's part of the fun for you as well, well that, yeah. That's the whole thing. I mean, what people don't remember is... You know, I remember the first day I met Eubank in uh, Grosvenor Casino... Uh, Gro- not Casino, Grosvenor Hotel in Sheffield during the World Snooker Championships. And he, had, he was 8-0, and zero, I think. And Len Ganley, the snooker referee, said, there's a kid up here who wants to meet you. And I'd, I'd heard the name, but I'd only seen clips of one of his fights I said well I'll come up to Sheffield I come up to Sheffield and he walked across the room and he just had that swagger George you know and I was like I'm looking at this bloke immaculate but he hasn't got a pot to piss in and he walked his first words to me were good afternoon Mr Hearn my name is Christopher Livingston Eubank and I am an athlete and I know what I'm worth that was his first line and we end up we did a deal for the next three fights at two grand two and a half three and I gave you 300 pound a week wages and he said, and you can stop those wages the moment I get beat. I went, no, I will stop them when you get beat twice, because sometimes you can be unlucky. And we thought, developed a weird friendship that got quite close. I mean, I was best man at his wedding, so we was close, you know. What was that speech like, Barry? How long did it take you to write the best man speech? Oh, mate, there's no point in me doing a big best man speech. I did a short best man speech, because then he did a speech. And you give you <laughs> bank a microphone. He walked around. He didn't do it standing up at the top table. He walked around the whole perimeter. By the end of it, half the audience were asleep at his own wedding. Everyone thinks he's a total nutcase and eccentric beyond belief. But there's a good bloke in there, you see. And I saw the good bloke. 
I do remember I had my first heart attack in 1999 and it wasn't a pleasant experience and I was, I was okay with it. My dad had five or six of them, so I was used to it anyway. So I'm in hospital and all of a sudden the door opened and there's Eubank in the tweeds with the Louis Vuitton case under his arm and the walking stick. And he started just going off on one. He'd memorised it, doing these Rudyard Kipling poems. And I think about 10 minutes he was going on about, you know, off. And I was like, I weren't feeling too bright. And I went, I took the mask off. I said, Chris, that's ever so kind of you. But uh, I think I better rest up now. He walked out. He did two hours in the children's ward with no press, nothing else, just entertaining them. And you don't read about things like that, you know. He was always dead straight, dead genuine, told the truth. There used to be a picture on that wall just behind, which was the best left jab I've seen as a picture. It's in Nigel Ben on flash on the chin. You know, it was ramrod straight, just turned at the last minute. And around that picture was the scorecards of the fight, the original scorecards. So to me, the best fight I've ever seen was Ben Eubank in 1990. And I predicted that Eubank would win and I gambled Everything I had, because by then I was doing my conquers. I knew that one day something like Sky would arrive, and I wanted to be in pole position when they got there with programs, material, coverage. So I invested everything. I owed the bank millions of pounds. I'd made all this money in 82. That had all gone. And the turning point, part of the turning point was Eubank being Ben in 1990. I remember my chief executive saying on the walk-in, he went, do you know how much we've got riding on this? No problem. <laughs> I was shitting myself. But you know, outside, you'd never know. That was part of the matchroom recovery, really, in 1990. And since then, we haven't had one, one year where we haven't advanced our profits year by year for the last... 30 odd years you do get involved with these people and Eubank was a very special and the great thing people don't understand is geniuses are special with that in mind I just wondered on biggest night of your career I think you argued that you, you answered that already yeah, yeah. most of your favourite night well the biggest night of my career no no the biggest night of my career is 1981 when Steve Davis won the World Snooker Championships that changed my life mm. that changed my life because all the things I'd wanted the control I wanted the power I wanted to be able to do things the way I wanted it to be done that came to fruition on the back of Davis winning. But along the way, so many fights, you know, Mark Reefer at York Hall, Carl Crook at the Royal Albert I mean, I can, if you had time, and I know you've got loads of time, but not as much time as you need for this, I could probably talk about a hundred fights that were significant and where they changed people's lives, you know, whether it's Paul Silky Jones up in Sheffield, whether it was Chris Pyre in Leicester, whether it was Steve Robinson in Cardiff, whether it was Francis Ampufu in London, where, you know, I can go on and on and on. I'm not recounting a story or a significant fact to you. I'm effectively recounting my life. All right, Deck, we better leave it there for part one. Yeah, there's plenty packed into there, but we've got loads more to get through. Do you know what else we've got, George? What, Deck? The finest feature in the history of this club. Oh, yes, that's coming up in part two. Yeah. So, tune in. Should we get straight into part two? Let's go. Let's go.